four, three, two, one, and we are live with the Philip Duff Show again. This time we've gone all the way to the left coast of America with somebody I've had many a drink with over the years. Uh, he was recently in New York. We didn't get to hang out, so we're doing it this uh, this bizarre and disconnected way. But fortunately, we've got booze to hand. Ladies and gentlemen, the one, the only, the bartender at large, Eric Castro. How you doing, buddy? Do well, my friend. Do well, brother. Thanks so much for having me, man. We we did actually have a chance. Like, we hung out a little bit in New York, but it was mostly at the Dead Rabbit Party. It that was, was a good yeah, time. That was a wild party. That was a good time, man. Wild time. That party so was I, the answer to the I got question. Out of a good time. <laughs> oh man, no, that's the answer to the question of what if you gave vast amounts of people unlimited booze on a bar with three floors? Like, yeah. <laughs> oh, I know, I know, man. It was a good time. It was so. Uh, at one point, I, I figured out the sweet spot. I sat at that little um I forget what it is. It's like a little a little um bench that's near the front door. Oh yeah, Henry's corner. Yeah, it was perfect because I got to sit there and I was kind of like the greeter. So I got to chat with everybody that came in. <laughs> and it's like sometimes somebody would come in, you know, they'd sit down with me for a minute and then they take off. So I was like, man, this is great. It's efficient. I get to see everybody get to say hi. It's the kind of thing old men like. Yeah, <laughs> brother. <laughs> Anything Amen involving that. a seat. Like I'm now at the age when if I drop something, I look at it for quite a while to work out if I could do without it instead of bending over to pick it up. Mm -hmm. You have to convince yourself that it's not really worth getting. Yeah, or if I'm sitting in a chair and someone comes in and say, hey, Phil, there's like cool shit going on in the next room. I'm like, you're going to have to give me a bit more information before I get out of this chair. <laughs> man, so think things have been uh, pretty good. Things are great. I've been staying busy out here, man. How are things for you on New York? It's hard to tell. I haven't been here lately. It is just absolutely fucking nuts. Uh, I just got back from 36 hours in Banff, Western Canada at a yeah. cocktail festival. Shout out to the Made with Love Banff Cocktail Festival. Me and mm -hmm. Del DeGroff went there. So I traveled with cool. the King, His Highness from New York. And before that, I was in the DR for a week with my kid and her class trip. And before that, I was Ooh. at the Geneva Festival in Holland, which was wild. And before yeah. that, I was judging the ADI Awards in Canada. And before that, I was judging the IWSC Awards in London. So it's been a thing. Yeah, right on, man. That's good. I'm good, glad to hear you've been staying busy. So you were here. And when I saw you in New York briefly in Temple Bar, you, were, you weren't you were headed straight back to the West Coast, were you? No, I did a little bit of hopping around. A little bit of hopping around. Went out, hung out in Miami for a little bit. Did an event with, uh, with the schmucks. Oh, yeah. For South Beach, which was wonderful, man. I was there for about five days. It's hard to beat. It's hard to beat Miami in February. The weather was absolutely perfect. Going out, having a good old time. Then I popped over to Nashville for a little bit before I hung out in New York and, and came home. Then I got home just in time for Bartender's Weekend, oh. which also was the biggest one we've had yet. Really? So it was wonderful. Yeah, it's been growing a little bit each year. And this year was like we had not even counting, you know, the sponsors and, and events and, you know, the people at the brand. We had over 2,000 attendees. Holy shit, man. Which was great, man. It was cool. I feel like this was like our, you know, the inflection point where we we're like, okay, so this is getting big. But I'll tell you what, the reason why I had such a good time, the reason why I was so proud of this Bartenders Weekend in specific was because a lot it wasn't the same faces that you see at all the events yeah it, i was really proud of the fact that it was there were a lot of young bartenders and a lot of people who was their first time to a cocktail event so it was people who were just jazzed and happy to be there they were going to all the events um the, it didn't seem like it wasn't all the jaded 
you know, older folks like us who like need a steak dinner in order to get convinced to come out. Oh yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know how the statistics work and it's always been hard, but last year after the first live action tales for a few years, they released a stat that 50% of the end attendees were first timers. That's awesome. I love that. That's great. It seemed high to me, but 30 to 50% was historically mm-hmm. always accurate. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I'm sure it's the same as San Diego. Before, I would know the entire bar team in a bar. Now, yeah. I might know one. Maybe. And I think that's great. That shows that our industry is growing. It's not stagnant. Well, it's you also know, it's so many people, people left. Yeah, that's true. When I do a seminar, I talk about side hustles. So, like, one bartender I know became a funeral director. Um, mm-hmm. Everybody's making clothes and jewelry. But the winner... He, was, he wasn't a bartender, but he had already become a brand ambassador, um, became a digital creator in the sense that he's now an Instagram sex coach together with his girlfriend. Mm, that's, that's lovely. Hey, you know what? It's a gig, man. And to he be seems fair, happy. As bartenders, we do that anyway. I know, we do it for we free. We don't get paid for it. We do it for free. Yeah, we do it for free. So I'm just glad to see somebody's actually, you know, um, having, um, getting reimbursed for their time. That makes me a little bit happy. That's kind of, it's a, it's a brave new world. So, hey, for people who don't know, what would be the elevator pitch of Eric Castro? Who are you right now in 2023? I can't imagine there's anyone who doesn't know who you are, but, you know, we got some weird listeners on this fucking show. Yeah, uh, I guess bartender, bar owner, uh, podcast host, do some YouTube stuff as well. Uh, but you don't talk about your charity work. Uh, you, you know, I think that's about it, really. I'm I'm just happy to be here, man. I'm feeling really blessed. I feel like these last few years were a little rough, and <laughs> like, yeah, you know, not just for the industry, but but uh, you know, across the board, it's like I ended up selling one of my bars. I sold uh, like provisions recently. Um, you know, it just at the ten year mark, I feel like it was a really good time to do it. Obviously, you know, it's a, you get a little sentimental, so it's a little hard to do. But in the end, I know it's the right choice, and I feel really good about it. Um, and then, but I'm still involved with Raised by Wolves. So Raised by Wolves is still still uh, a, a bar I'm still affiliated with here in San Diego. And I feel like that just right now, you know, I'm I'm good with one space. Never know what could happen. Maybe if I did another one, it wouldn't be out of the question. But who knows? Who knows? Right right now, I'm just I'm just I told myself I'd give myself till June at the end of June to figure it out what what my next move would be. Well, I got to tell you, with regards to polite. Uh, one of the coolest things is when you can go back into a bar that you open and used to own and you don't anymore and see it's running just as well and maybe even better. I had that yeah. experience recently last year yeah. in Amsterdam. So I set up Door 74, 2008, won all the awards. Brilliant, excellent. First speakeasy in Holland. First one in the world's 50 best bars. Amazing. But then mm-hmm. I moved over here and I uh, got my business partner just, you know, slowly buy me out and he finished around 2018 which was great timing and covid killed it, yeah. obviously <laughs> yeah. but believe it or not it's been bought and reopened and refurbished by somebody i know who actually used to be a liquor company sales rep and i trained him and all his colleagues in bartending about a million years ago in holland and he quit and he became a a mini bar ty- tycoon he owns like six bars he's taken it over he's refurbished it he's brought it back to its glory and I was at a party there last year. It's fucking amazing. It's great. Yeah. I, I wished you that I, with Polite. No, no, no. That was actually the goal. I have no doubt that the place is going to do really well without me because that was my goal from the very beginning was I wanted the bar. I wasn't trying to build a platform for Eric Castro. I was trying to build a bar that was a viable business that didn't need me to function. 
You know, um, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The E Myth, you know, by Michael Gerber was was a big influence on me, and I feel like I, I really like that idea about in the book how he talks about a lot of people think they're opening a business, but they're really just creating a job. Boom. And he said, like, what you want to do is you want to create a business that you don't have to be there every day. So I was very steadfast about making sure that the identities were very separate. Like, if you look on the the Polite Provisions Instagram, there's no photos of me. It was all very deliberate as I always wanted to make sure that the place was had its own identity. Like, That's a separate smart. thing for me. Yeah. Because you build people up. Like, when we opened mm-hmm. uh, Door 74... Uh, we hired Timo Janssen to be the head bartender and he was really up and coming. He was, you, you know, he was ready. Mm-hmm. And there was no stage for him in Holland. no platform. There would be like, you know, the best cocktail bar would be like a nice little bar where, okay, fine, you can make a, you know, a Cosmopolitan or a porn star or something like that. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't really set up for it. It was a beer bar, you know, stainless steel setting. And we're like, okay, we're going to go all the way with this. And I mm-hmm. almost never got behind the bar. I, yeah. I had a complete hatred of those managers or owners who would always be like jumping behind the bar to help the guys out. And then thereby forcing your bartender to turn into a bar back, fucking the service. Cause you know, if you've been out from behind the bar, you don't know the register or anything like that. Yeah. Like there's a couple of people in the world. Timo's one, Anthony Pullen is another who can tell you that they actually bartended with me behind the bar, but I worked very hard not to be that guy. Mm-hmm. it's important for the place to have its own identity be able to stand on its own that's why i have no doubt that the place is going to do well without me because there, there's so many systems in place that have been there for years that are designed to keep it um you know to to, to maintain its own momentum and speaking of which mm-hmm. a place you were involved with has just reopened in fact i was literally within about 200 feet of it but i had to rush back to uh jump on this podcast because the fucking mta tried to stop it happening um what was boilermaker is yeah. now super bueno with uh hope ignacio our uh our dear old friend nacho and it looks awesome how do you feel about that i haven't had a chance to check it out yet but i would like to get it come out to new york i, I need to, i would love to see it in person because i haven't had haven't had a chance to, to experience it yet but i'm really excited about it you know what um for people who don't know this uh bar on first avenue and first street has been home to many a bar, mm-hmm. and they've generally been fueled by the power behind the throne, which is His Highness Gregory Bohm of mm-hmm. Cocktail Kingdom. And Greg has done for bartenders what a lot of uh, investment companies do for chefs, right? Mm-hmm. They take over the financial burden, the back office, everything, and they allow them to just be the essentially creative directors of the bar. So yeah. it's Masa Urishido with Katana Kitten, uh, Nico De Soto with uh, Mace, Eric Castro with Boilermaker, mm-hmm. uh, and now Nacho with um, Super Bueno in the form of Boilermaker Space. And Boilermaker was awesome, and it kicked ass, yeah. and it made money. And yeah. It's now evolved into Nacho's thing. And if you don't know mm-hmm. him, he's a he's a lifer New York bartender, originally from Mexico. He's about 45 mm-hmm. now, worked at um, you know, Saxon and Parole and Public and Ghost Donkey and all that kind of thing. And he's got more than enough personality to fill that room. Yeah, yeah, no, that's great. I can't I can't wait to check it out. I'm gonna be out for I'm guessing for um BCB. So I'll be able to, mm-hmm. I'll be able to pop in there, sit at the bar and have a drink or two. I'm excited. Yeah, it's cool. So 
There's so many new bars. Jesus Christ. I can't even keep track of them, man. In any given city, there's so many new spots. If anything, I feel like it's a really exciting time for cocktails right now because there's every city seems to be doing so much, so many dynamic things. Like, I mean, I, I do make it a point to get out to LA pretty often and I can't keep track of all the new bars there. Um, you know, even here in San Diego, it's pretty difficult to keep track of all the new bars, it seems like. But I just, I have actually, I'm trying to think where else I haven't been. Like, I, I feel like there's so much cool stuff going on. I, I really need to make sure I'm I'm making the time to, to to try to keep up with all the new spots. Well, when people come to New York, uh, I want to take them out for a drink. And I'm like, okay, you know, you've heard of Katana Kid. You've heard of Dead Rabbit. I'm going to take you to the places that are going to blow your mind. Like Lanox, which is a Paris-style record bar in a subway service room in the subway on West 28th. Or I'll take you to the revamped Chelsea Hotel, which is a fucking stunner. Or I'll take you to Valerie and Madame George, which is like a massive... The gin bar, really, of New York City, mm-hmm. although Ivory Peacock gives it a run for its money. And they just opened a 200-person speakeasy underneath. And Whoa. these places, you haven't heard of them because they don't need publicity because they're packed all the time. The only point of publicity and playing the whole Tales World's 50 Best game is to be full all the time. They're already full all the time. Some of yeah. those bars now around the world, and I want to hear what you think, around the world they're packed all the time and they're busy and now they want the awards and attention for the staff what do you think about that i mean because the staff like i it. mean if the place is packed the, the staff's probably already making a bunch of money like you know if they if they want to you know showcase what they're doing and build the brand you know who knows maybe they want to open a second location I, I i i support that you know by all means but shoot man if you already you've already got the keys of the kingdom if you got a busy bar that's packed, you know, six, seven nights a week, then then, then God bless you, man. You you already um you you cracked the code that everybody else is trying to crack. But I would say I would give them um I would encourage them, but I would tell them to be sure they know what their goals are. Because if they start messing with things and start changing things in a way that is what their clientele does not want, they have they run the risk of you know, um, they run the risk of not capturing a new audience while losing their old audience. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's there's certain stuff you have to do. And we all love to my many, many friends in the PR business. It ain't rocket science. Um, You know, you invite people, they invite you. It's almost like podcasts. You know, you, you kiss a lot of ass. You tag a lot of stuff in photos. You go out on the road. It's 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 like another job. Yeah. And and so much more harder than it used to be. But also it's expanded so much. The ta- Tales put out their Spirited Award long lists uh yesterday, I think it was. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. There are 400 bars listed. Whoa. Yeah, Whoa. there are 40 different categories with 10 nominations in each category. Mm-hmm. And that does not, that's just the bars, cocktail bars, hotel bars, and restaurant bars mm-hmm. all around the world. That doesn't include, oh, and bar team. It doesn't include bartender. I get it though. I get it. I, I, I actually think that's good. And I'll tell you why. It, because 
When a lot of us, when, when me and you were, um, you know, I guess in the in the early days, earlier days of craft cocktails, you know, you're looking at the earlier days of the Spirits Awards, you know, I guess even around like 2008, 2009, 2010, whatever, there weren't that many bars, craft bar, bars opening up every month, right? Like there were maybe like five or six serious craft cocktail bars opening in the entire U.S., right? Like, I mean, big contenders, right, in that era. Now, like we were just joking around, there's probably five or six that just opened in New York last week. You know what I mean? So it's like the the in order for these lists to stay relevant, they need to make sure that they're actually, you know, maybe 400 might be excessive, right? I, I get it, but they need to make sure that 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 they're remaining relevant by actually going out there and finding all the new stuff. You know, because I I don't know, maybe I get it. I honestly think there are that many places. I think there might be, and it's hard to tell, right? Yeah. Because no one checks on the judges, and if you're the judge for a region, well, you want to support your region. Yeah. So would you nominate a bar that you think is marginal? Maybe. Ooh. I mean, have you seen the world's 500 best bars list? Yeah, it's a kind of cool list. Well, I know the guy who puts it together, Anthony. Ooh. He's a cool dude, uh, him and his partner, Mel. And Anthony was in the world, well, I think he still is, in the world of advertising. And mm -hmm. advertising, they're always chasing metrics for ROI, mm -hmm. right? Because it used to be, it was really simple. If you got a primetime TV ad spot, you reached 60% of the entire country. So yeah, therefore, yeah. you did the ad and your sales went up by this much. That's the ROI. Mm -hmm. People don't watch TV anymore. No. Right? Like on Fox the highest rated uh, network, Tucker Carlson, RIP, used to get three or four million viewers. But a podcast like Joe Rogan will get 11 million downloads and listens, yeah. or maybe 100 million, I don't know. So he came from that world and he used that technology essentially to scrape the internet. So his list, and he'll tell you this quite happily, is it's not necessarily the 500 best bars, it's the 500 most talked about bars in the world. Ah, okay. So there's a lot of overlap. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and obviously, what comes first? Being talked about or the recognition? And mm -hmm. if you're from uh, Minneapolis and you get just a mention, you get number 99 on North America's 50 best. Or even mm -hmm. you just get a mention on the Discovery, which is sort of like the... The rookie, the cool. rookie team, the rookie bench, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's going to double your business in Minneapolis. Whereas if you go from number two to number three in London, it's, well, you're already maxed out there, right? Yeah, you're, yeah. you're already having to buy extra wheelbarrows to bring all the cash to the bank. So You wonder what's funny. I'll tell you what, like, I feel one of the most, I hate to say this because I hate to give them the credit. Um, because <laughs> they're, they're, they're much maligned in our, in our industry, in the hospitality world. but. One of the one of the most tangible boosts in business we ever got at Plight Provisions was when we went on Yelp, when we went from four stars to four and a half. Oh yeah. It was palpable and it was legitimate and it was sustaining. It sustained it never the business never dropped after that. We it was a probably solid like seven percent boost in sales that just continued. And had had you sought that? Had you like were you on Yelp replying and dealing and no, what we what we did, we we just really made sure that our staff was in tune with it, and we told the whole staff that like um if if um 
if we hit four and a half stars, we would take the whole crew to Disneyland. Good. So and so and it was it was something that they were working on. It probably was like a like a nine month, ten month project. It's we wild. Stuff, yeah. And it yeah. legitimately it, it paid off. And it's basically we're just like, um, there was not that there was no scamming or anything, because I think their algorithms are too good for that. But we were just very much making sure that, you know, people were like, oh hey, by the way, thank you so much for coming in, folks. My name's Eric. If you need anything, let me know. We always make sure everybody gets their name. And Rate us on Yelp. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean it works and it worked, bro. I mean, it took a bit of time, but it finally did. And also we did a little bit of reach out, not too much because you don't want to incentivize. You know, people like um, you know, you don't you don't want to incentivize people, you know, just being hacks and, and arguing scammers, for no scammers, yeah, scammers, because there are Griffers. people who do that, legitimately do that. But you you know, w- once we hit that threshold and we held it for about um, I think maybe a few months, then it was like it would never fluctuate after that, just kind of stayed. Yeah, I had a great experience recently, um, yeah. in a similar vein. So, me and uh, Mrs. Duff, the lovely Elaine. Went down to Charleston to see Sean Muldoon, former oh. major domo of uh, Dead Rabbit, and his wife yeah. Anne, and Gillian Vos, because they're down yeah. there. And what we were actually doing. Two class acts, my friend, two class acts. Absolutely. We were judging uh, TJ Lynch's bartender contest at his place, Low Life, out in Folly Beach, just outside Charleston. Mm-hmm. So we went and we judged that. It was amazing. It's great. And we um, came in and had lunch. Uh, with Sean and Anne and Gillian. We were at a, a great place in Charleston. If you're ever in Charleston, 82 Queen, 82 Queen. That's the name of the restaurant. Mm-hmm. And we're sitting outside and our waiter is an older chap. And I'm 50, so that means he was quite old. And the mm-hmm. dude was fucking great. He was on it. He adapted in a million subtle ways that if you weren't paying attention, you wouldn't get it. And, and right at the end, he brought the check and he's like, hey, you guys have a good time? Like, yeah. So, so here's the deal. There's a contest with the staff. Whoever gets the most five-star reviews on TripAdvisor gets like a $500 bonus. So, you know, I'd love you all Whoa. to review me. Uh, give me the bo- give me whatever rating you like. Doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Just so long as you review me. My name's Brad or whatever. I don't think his name mm-hmm. is Brad. And um, he walked away. Now, for listeners who don't know Sean Muldoon, I consider Sean to be one of my closer friends. Sean is a very hard person to impress. Yeah, yeah. A very hard person. He looks permanently pissed off with the world. (laughs) And Sean turned to me and he said, Phil, that's fucking genius. And it is. And we all went Mm -hmm. on and gave that guy a review. Mm -hmm. And he, he brought the check back to be signed. And I think Jillian asked, um, how often do you win the contest? And he said, every month. That's great. That's great. That's great. <laughs> but it, it's it's yeah. healthy because it works, man. Yeah. you can't, you can't, you almost can't game it. No, you can't. You can't. You can't game mm-hmm. it. You might get a table of people who are lazy or they're not familiar with the technology or whatever. That happens. Mm-hmm. You know, it's hard to control your tables. But what a clever thing to do. Like there was once a seminar at Tales. It was Alan Moss from uh, Laclandestine Absinthe, Arun Merchandani, who used to work at Lexington Bar and Books and now owns the Drunken Monkey in New York, mm-hmm. and Edmund Weil from Nightjar, and Ariel and Swift in London. And it was about this. It was about, you know, 
chasing the Yelp ratings, chasing the TripAdvisor, replying to people, reaching out, like really embracing it, using it as a way. Because it's really easy to shit on Yelp. And there's a lot of idiots there. But you know yeah. what? Idiots come in bars. My wife's ex-husband runs a mega bar, restaurant, nightclub out in the Hamptons of New York, right? Mm -hmm. And everybody is an asshole in the Hamptons in the summer. Everybody, yeah. right? You you know, the Dalai Lama could go out on the train, and by the time he got off the train in Southampton, he'd be a dick too. It's just how it happens. Mm -hmm. And when he hires staff, he's like, look, you know what's going to happen. You know what they're going to be like. Yeah. Right? This is, the assholes are not the exception. So you got to know. you got to know. Mm -hmm. but it can I'm, I'm, I'm so glad to hear that example of you because a lot of people kind of stick their head in the sand mm -hmm. but I, I look at, you know I, I was I recently stayed at a resort in Dominican Republic and I was looking at TripAdvisor reviews and they weren't great right mm -hmm. and I was still going to go there anyway but the GM of the hotel replied to every single one with exactly the same copy paste thing it yeah, was either, it was literally copy paste. It was, a, it was either. You're better off you not so responding at all. You're better off not responding. Oh no! At all. I wrote a review, good and bad. Wasn't all bad. And I said, Cesar, I know you're reading this. Don't fucking respond, because <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather a real response than none at all. Really? Obviously, he's trying to gain the system. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, what's the point of even doing it at all anyway? I feel like that's more likely to backfire anyway, because now it seems insincere. Yeah. It, no, but it really was copy paste. Yeah, for for a lot of different reasons. But I think I think that just goes to show it's like you can't. There's not really shortcuts to this. There isn't like a shortcut necessarily. No, you could probably use ChatGPT to do it now. Um, <laughs> like ChatGPT, could you respond to this Yelp review? <laughs> oh my god! You know what ChatGPT is amazing at? Yeah, it's amazing at being a. a well, sometimes, depending what you ask, it's really amazing. I went on ChatGPT and I said, hey, I own a liquor brand called, oh, a, a, I own a Dutch Geneva brand called Old Duff Geneva. I'd like you to come up with names and descriptions for 10 line extensions. Oh, and they should be funny. Dude, these 10 examples they gave me, a $30,000 ad agency wouldn't have done better. They had Whoa. one. Yeah, they said, okay, um, Duff and Stormy, Old Duff Geneva infused with uh, Jamaican ginger for a spicy kick. You know, the Old Duff <laughs> yeah. Flaming Goat, cask strength, strong Geneva. And it went on and on. This was, this was pure solid gold. I couldn't have done that well. Mm -hmm. Like, especially, well, think about it. Say if you had gone to an agency, paid 30K, they would have just went on Chat GPT. And they were like, oh, this guy needs 10 line extensions, so give me 20 of them, and then we'll just pick the 10 best ones. Dude, it's in some ways, it's so good. Yeah. I it's use terrible. it to write the captions for my episodes now, for the podcast episodes. What? How do you prompt it? I just so like, um, you know, I interviewed John DeBerry, the author of, you know, a 90s-inspired cocktail book, write a caption, <laughs> write a three-sentence caption, a three-sentence caption. And it, it has, you know, it'll do a whole search. It'll be like, John DeBerry's acclaimed bartender, blah, 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 formerly of this and this. Tune in as he talks about his, his nostalgia, you know, chalk, chalk book, blah, 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 blah. 
And it's great, man. It, it takes about like, not that that takes me a long time to write anyway, but it's kind of just like one more thing for the day. And honestly, that takes me like, with chat GPT, it takes me like five seconds. <laughs> I don't know. I do feel <laughs> it, it's like, so this is a lot. It's going to be a long thing. What are you drinking, by the way, Eric? Uh, um, a little Lagunitas. Lagunitas IPA. Local. And then, um, and then this new um, boutique. Uh, micro distillery the well-known abraham overholt yeah yeah a little old overholt now and the then, v- you know stay hydrated i got a little bit of hibiscus iced tea dude that's uh I'm that's very west fisting, coast bro i'm triple you're, fisting you're triple fisting i don't know how many yeah, fists yeah. you have but that's three yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it's an interesting one because if you think about teachers right for quite some time they've had software to detect plagiarism yeah right that was ramped up with ai and now their students are turning in ai essays so tools have been developed for teachers and professors to work out if the essay was written by ai but here's the problem the tool to detect ai is also ai yeah so by feeding the ai tool things that might be ai you're making all ai better you're training it this i feel when you know the smoldering ruins of the earth are discovered by aliens they'll be like did they not realize that they were building skynet like yeah (laughs) bro i'm honestly i'm kind of starting to feel that i saw this guy online who um who he built a chatbot for his like I don't know a Tinder account or Hinge or something like that. <laughs> and in any way, it just it's made that the AI learned all his types and his humor, so it just goes on swiping and creating conversations with everybody. And oh, he's getting it all ran these dates. his Tinder. Yeah, or ran his yeah ran his account. So it's he's getting all these dates, and then now he's like he feels a little unethical about it because he's like I'm here and it's like this girl's impressed by my chat. But like it actually wasn't me; it was like a program I designed. But isn't isn't that um, Serrano de Bergerac? That's how it was. Exactly, exactly. It's exactly what it is. You know, like if if you think about online dating, and I was there in the uh, the dial up mm. era in the brief periods when I was single. Uh, any ladies listening? I'm sorry, taken. But yeah, uh, it definitely it advantaged people. It gave advantages to people who were handsome, like you and me. But it also yeah, gave yeah. an advantage to people who could write. Yeah, you know, true. Which, which might not be the most important thing you look for in a partner. And mm-hmm. a lot of people, so I have, I'm able to read really quick. Like I can scan my Facebook feed, read all of it and remember most of it. Most people can't, you know, perhaps mm-hmm. go quite that speed. So I would, I would like scan loads of profiles and you would see at least a lot of women just copy pasting stuff they'd seen on other women's profiles whoa yeah and i remember reading an article in a dutch newspaper and it was this guy who was like a player you know and he he was trying to teach people how to like hack um it was a dutch website called relatsy planet relation planet dot nl and he's like what you have to do in your little description is say you like horse meat because so many women 
would just have a generic copy pasting. I like playing sports and walking outside and horses that he would put in there. I like horse meat. So that was kind of a filter. Yeah, yeah. He wanted a lady to respond. And actually, I'll tell you a story. <laughs> this is the ultimate one. But then again, it's uh, it's my podcast. Um, I was doing work with, with a lady, uh, a young lady, quite a, quite a while ago, like probably eight, nine years ago. And she was like 29 or 30. And we're going around. We're essentially married to each other. Everything except the nasty. We're having breakfast. We're bitching. We're going all day. We're commiserating. Ooh. We're having cocktails. And, and and she was single and I was married. So I was asking, like, what's it like? You know? And she was on Tinder. Mm-hmm. And she told me this story. Um, she was messaging with a guy and it's going well. It's going well. And, you know, the barriers are down a bit. Not totally, but a bit. And the guy asks, what's your favorite flower? And she says, oh, it's an orchid. And he says, great. Now I know what to put on your coffin after I murder your pussy. And she told me this wow. story. She told me the story and she looked at me like, and I'm like, please tell me you went on a date with this God because he is cutting through all the bullshit. He's wow. not interested. Like I get, it, I get that it's a little, you know, yeah. <laughs> but, but he is fishing for the one woman out of a hundred or a thousand who will say, take me to bed or leave me forever. Mm-hmm. Respect that. She didn't go on a date with him, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. I can but see that's, that. You got, you, but you, you get that he cut through the bullshit. Yeah. Ooh. Um, what do you think? What? Who says romance is dead? <laughs> Who says romance is dead? Who says Americans aren't educated? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. Um, what do you think of that, though? You know, there's a lot it's to out be there. said for, for subtlety. Yeah, it's a lot to be said for subtlety. He's not lying. He's putting himself... Yeah. Right out there. Um, I would I would say that that's actually hearing that isn't surprising because it it, it reminds me of how inept people are socially right now. Um, but do you I'm think he was people, inept? I think he meant that. I don't know if it landed the way he wanted it to land. Ah, but no, 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 no. It's about what he puts out. He's yeah. saying, "I'm that guy." And it's mm-hmm. going to take one woman in a hundred or maybe a thousand. Mm-hmm. But then he's going to have her. Hey, but, but what's that kind of ROI, brother? What's the ROI on that? Well, I mean, I, I, I'm, not on, <laughs> I'm not on Tinder. My wife doesn't like it. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, you can send a lot of messages. Yeah. You know what? Honestly, I haven't, I haven't uh, used any of the apps. I've never used a dating app. Um, I don't know how they work. I'm single now for the first time since I think Barack Obama's first first month in office. Um, How's that going? It's it's going well, man. And how are you? It's are going- you, so are you on any of the apps? No, I'm not on any of them. I've never I haven't used them. Um, I'm a little wary about them. It's not your generation. No, it's not a thing too. But also, like, here's the thing: the reason why I didn't I didn't sign up, I was maybe considering it, and then the first few dates I went on. All the the all the gals were super happy and excited that I wasn't on them and hadn't been on them. So I was being treated like this unicorn. And I kind of just went with that. I was like, well, okay. And I've talked to people about it. I'm seeing like a friend pull one out, so I'm aware how they work, but I haven't really um I don't think I need I, I have I've been having decent enough luck. 
So I just haven't, I haven't um, used it, but I won't judge anybody who does. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of people have met truly wonderful people on there. I haven't really pushed it. I think what it is, a lot of it is, um, I don't know, it's, dating today is very strange. It's a lot different than it was um, w- when I was dating before. You know, I, I feel like especially coming out of the pandemic, a lot of people are very socially awkward. Yeah, A lot are. of people don't know how to behave in public. Like I've heard some nightmare stories from women I know about guys that they've gone on dates with. And they're like, these guys like don't know how to like, or I went on a date with a guy and he didn't even know how to like, he was just couldn't even talk to the, to the server or the host or whatever. It's just like basic conversation, you know? Um, no, this is, I, you know, I've been traveling quite a bit. Yeah. I even travel quite is a bit. Is it worse in America? Uh, no, no, it's a universal thing. Whoa. I get it. And I, I've heard it from Asia. I've heard it from, uh, all I've been all around Europe. It's mm-hmm. no, I mean, it's just the people are fatter in America. That's all. So they're less. Yeah, yeah. No, but it's um. Here's the thing. Here's the paradox, Mister Castro. Um, you and me are all bartenders. So I know. We I know. are unicorns. I always uh tell my wife, you know, I go on a business trip. She's like, oh, you know, don't sleep with one of the young brand managers or whatever. I'm like, look. It's never going to be a 0% chance, but I hit my quota somewhere around 2001. Mm-hmm. And most men never come close, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just because I was a bartender. A bartender yeah. is a male bartender is the closest to a woman because you it's the closest a man can get to being objectified and having unlimited sex, right? And every woman in the world gets that at the age of 15. So everyone, like a, a male bartender, understands that. I feel, and I'm being completely serious for possibly the only time in this podcast mm-hmm. right now. You know, however, it does mean that in certain things, bartenders have like no game whatsoever. Like if you've ever taken a load of bartenders on a brand trip, as I have many, 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 many times, you know, you go out and these are all fucking top rank, big dick bartenders, usually male. In their Ooh. cities, and you go out. You're in a bar on a Monday night. They got no chat if they're not behind the bar. They're completely emasculated. <laughs> they, they don't know how to dance. They don't know how to talk to girls. Ooh. Right? Right? So it's so it's, it's a whole facade. Thing. It's all a facade. The bar is your protection, but it's also your Superman suit. You take that away. You know, I, I think that even comes back to what we were just talking about. It's important. I feel like social skills and social graces are something that people are forgetting about. And I, and I don't mean to, I don't even mean to um, say it's young people because I feel like it's, it's, it's cross-generational. I don't know if it was, I think it's a technology. You see people just walking down the street. I remember being in Tokyo about four years ago and I would see people just walking through crowded streets, staring at their phones, never looking up. Like bumping into people, you know, tripping over. Yeah, that's Manhattan, people. by the way, as well. No, I know, I know, and I never. I was like, oh, thank God. I, I hope that never happens in America. Then when I was in Manhattan, when I was in New York, the first two months of the year, it was just everywhere. I saw one poor guy in, in Brooklyn bash his head on like a, a utility <laughs> box because he was just walking, staring at his phone. I'm like, it's not safe, you know. But I th- so what I think it is, it's like people. I think during the pandemic, especially accelerated, that people crawled into their phones. But, you know, I guess to bring it back to hospitality and our jobs, if anything, I think it's created an opportunity for us as bartenders and bar owners to, like, 
create that convivial atmosphere because it's so sorely missing from people's lives. Like people are becoming, they're, they're climbing into their phones and their devices when they really just crave interaction with people. So it's what we all need. It's, it's, it's what humans need. So it's so important now for, for bars and bartenders to understand how important it is to do what we can to create that atmosphere. And it's a really beautiful thing when people feel good about themselves and they feel happy and they actually, they don't look at their phone, not because they're trying to, but because they just forgot like, Oh my God, I haven't even looked at my phone for like an hour. Bigger thing. And I'm glad that you brought it up. One of, uh, as a private consultant, one of the more popular classes that I teach for MBA students, first year law students and all that is actually called how to behave in a bar mm-hmm. because they don't know. And if I don't teach them, no one will. Mm-hmm. So did you ever watch the TV series Mad Men? Yeah. Yeah. Lovely show. Right. So, you know, the character Roger Sterling. Yes. Yes. Right. So Roger Sterling was the sort of the guy. He knew the bartender and the hooker and the maitre d' and the taxi driver and the mayor. He's a relationships guy, right? Mm-hmm. Director Eremitus of, you know, client services, whatever it was. Well, every company used to have one of them. And it was usually the alcoholic younger brother of the CEO. That's how it went, mm-hmm. right? And MBA culture really got going. Management consultant culture really got going in the 70s, and it spread outside the US, it went to the UK, it went everywhere, and it got in the liquor industry as well. At the time, the liquor industry was mostly European, actually. Mm-hmm. And if you look at it, all these people who are getting a nice salary, and what they did was what we would now call onboarding. They would take the new recruits who were usually well-brought-up young white men from good families. Yeah. And these guys clearly had some education, but they didn't know the world. Like you've been drinking handles of vodka in your dorm in Harvard for four years, you know? Mm-hmm. And they would say, they would introduce them to the bartender, the maitre d', the hooker, the taxi driver, the madam at the brothel, the mayor, all this. It, it kind of like a finishing school. I was about to say, it's like a finishing school for, for scoundrels. Yeah. Well, not scoundrels. Yeah, business, just businessmen, same. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. They don't exist anymore. So you you get a 30-year-old, somebody who's earning half a million dollars a year, who literally doesn't know how to behave in a bar. And it's not their fault. Mm-hmm. There's no they they eviscerated the Roger Sterlings of the world. You know, well, it's the, it's, their parents just didn't teach them how to behave. Um, and I feel like sometimes it's really difficult. It's difficult. Like, how am I supposed to teach you something? In, in a couple of days that your parents failed to teach you in 18 years. So I, I think, I do think it, it, there's something very tragic going on. Maybe it's like a, we're, we're at this weird growing pains, but I think things like that are, are a factor. I do think people aren't, it's important to maybe like take someone under your wing. Like, you know, yes. sometimes when I go, I, I, I like to take out like my lead bartender and, you know, my, my bar manager, I like to take them out for drinks and just basically introduce them to people. And I do feel like, um, it's in, it's important for for that to be um maybe we're not ritualizing it enough uh, ritualizing and formalizing like i set up mm-hmm. the balls bartender academy in amsterdam largest bar mm-hmm. school in europe and we would do a lot of trainings for anyone who wanted to come in and be trained on almost anything 
And one time, a very famous luxury hotel came in with all their new staff. Now, I worked at a five-star luxury hotel in London, the Hyde Park Hotel. How much luxury? We had a separate door for the Queen. It was that kind of thing. Yeah, uh, it's now the Mandarin Oriental in Knightsbridge mm-hmm. near Harrods, and um, generally in a luxury hotel, there's an awful lot of young people there, like eighteen-year-old mm-hmm. bartenders, waiters, chambermaids, whatever. And they brought in a load of their staff. We taught them about bartending, and I, I was chatting to them at the end of the day. We'd always have beer and talk. And I was chatting, I was like, so what else is the training? I'm like, oh my God, we had a great training. It was luxury acclimation. Mm. So they would, the the luxury hotel had a couple of branches in Amsterdam. Or mm. not branches, but they were uh, they uh, they would associate with another luxury hotel. So this mm-hmm. the new employees from one would go and check in to the other hotel. They would sleep one night there. Um, then they would go and have a meeting about booking an event, right? And these are mm-hmm. these are young people. And at that stage in my life, I had already had an insanely rock and roll life. I had been flown first class to Japan and thousand dollar a night hotels. So I understand sometimes you've had a ten thousand dollar flight, a four hundred dollar limo ride from the airport. And you're standing, you're checking in, and it's taking forever, and it's killing you inside. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not about at that stage. It's not about money. You're just tired. Yeah. Yeah, but if if you're the twenty year old check in clerk, you're like, well, why is this guy being a dick? You know. Mm-hmm. And these young people in Amsterdam had been confronted with that, and they realized, like, whoa, like these rich folk are people too. Mm-hmm. It it was really yeah okay yeah I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna look into that i'm gonna have to google that what what, what would you google <laughs> i'm just kidding i'm kidding i'm kidding no but you know i, I think that's important it, because in a way it's putting them in a in a position where they're gonna where they have to practice empathy in a situation that they might not be able to to experience otherwise even like little things like we do that with our staff sometimes especially like newer employees who might you know be a little bit like younger in the hospitality industry don't have as much experience um, you know, they might not necessarily have the budget or the money to go out to fancy bars, right? Yes. So I, I'll legitimately, I intentionally will say things, especially with newer hires, like, okay, well, like you're allowed, you know, for the next couple of weeks or whatever, you can get, um, you can go to the bar and try one drink after your shift, but it has to be a cocktail you've never tried before. That's a standard thing I've done you know? in training post Fridays for years. But also, yeah. you know, if you can take a staff member to 11 Madison Park for a cocktail. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. if you can take somebody to the Connaught, because these bars run on young people. Like, do you know how Ago Perone got the gig at the Connaught? Yeah, you told me the story, but I forget. Remind me. I- Ago is an old, old friend. We've known each other for 25. Well, I- we've known each other for 20 years. We had lunch about two months ago and he said, Phil, I've known you for 25 years. And I did the math. I'm like, I didn't meet you till he says, no, no, no. I was watching videos of you doing flair in Las Vegas. <laughs> VHS. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Ago was working at a great neighborhood, neighborhood cocktail bar called Montgomery Place mm-hmm. in uh, Notting Hill. 
in London. And, you know, they're making, like, his signature drink was a shooter called the Duracell. Mm-hmm. He was a good bartender. <laughs> you know, he's wearing a, uh open neck black shirt and braces. We're, we're talking a long time ago. And there was an older American guy who would come in all the time have a Negroni. Negroni, Negroni, Negroni. That's it. Ago didn't even really know his name. And one time, this guy came in, had a Negroni, and he said, Ago, I'm opening a bar. Well, I'm kind of revamping a bar. And I think you'd be a good fit. Why don't you come along and have a chat with me? And that was Brian Silva, who's an American, and he was reopening the Connaught Bar. Whoa. And he went into his neighborhood bar and he found a nice, enthusiastic, retired flair bartender. <laughs> and he <laughs> said, you could do this. And Ago did. And the first person Ago hired was Eric Lawrence. And there was a period there yeah. in the Connaught when you would go into the Connaught and it was Ago and Eric together. And that was, it's Every magical time, now. Yeah. That's wonderful. That's really cool. I didn't know that he was an ex-player bartender. I'm going to have to, next time I'm, I'm in London, I'm going to have to have him uh, throw some bottles for me. Dude, everyone was. I was, Wayne Collins, yeah. John Kakuru. Mm-hmm. Like, we're like ex-Nazis who are living quietly in South America. <laughs> because all With the, the shameful past, at least, at least I do feel like, um, I do feel like Flair's been, um, history's been a little kinder to, to Flair bartenders the last few years. Well, the thing is, the biggest thing about Flair wasn't juggling bottles. Juggling bottles was 10% of what we did. Mm-hmm. When I worked at Fridays in the UK, training was six weeks before you spoke to a customer. You qualified in the kitchen. You got up. You had to ace your pour test, free pouring, both hands, greater accuracy than a robot could achieve with a jigger. Mm-hmm. You know, all of this. And the rewards were very big. You know, we we, we made a lot of money. Um, but they never taught us flair. Flair, they wanted it to be individual. So you had to do it yourself. And speed rounds, speed rounds grew out of the Friday's bartender contest, first at the Quest for the Best in Orlando, and then at Legends in Las Vegas. So mm-hmm. when I look at things, I love what I love the ethos of speed rack. I love the ethos of mm-hmm. um Oh, what's the other fucking one? The wild one. Um, the speed round contest. Uh, Barmania? Yeah. Speed round? One of the, yeah. Yeah, they're all good. Yeah, yeah. But it breaks my heart. Like, uh, speed rounds were evolved out 15 years ago with Christian, Christian Delpesh in mm-hmm. Vegas. Because you had four judges watching everybody. The drinks had to be good. Like, now... You do a speed rack, you do something else. The judge will taste it and say, ooh, well, this is nice. However, this one has a cherry in it, so I'm going to give it more points. It's like, no, that's not how drinks work. Mm-hmm. You know? Like, speed rack, speed rounds are something. They're the baby we threw out with the bathwater of flair bartending. Mm-hmm. And any good flair bartender will tell you, the flair was only 10% of it. The rest of it was fucking rock-solid professionalism that we've had to relearn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I used to work with the old uh, Fridays guy who did some really, really cool flair back in the day. Yeah, he was a, he was a great bartender. Um, 
Jason Rael. He was a bit out, of, out of the San Jose um, Fridays. I bartended with him for maybe a year or two, and he was great. He was just a great, uh, like a, the, the statesman behind the bar would, would do flair. Maybe um, whenever we had like a lull in service on the really busy nights, like two or three minutes, he'd kind of he'd put on a little show for everybody. He was pretty cool. Great guy. I mean, flair bartending. If you're a flair, if you're a former flair bartender, it's something you disclose about as readily as if you admit to watching the TV show Yellowstone at the moment. Mm-hmm. You know, I haven't you know seen what's it on. I know the show, but man, I have too many streaming services. I I, I don't need a new new streaming service. Now it's a very popular show, and it's basically. Uh, it's set in Montana and it's about cowboys and ranches and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's very, it's, it, I've heard it's, it's good. No, it is good. I think so. But, but it's, just, one, it's on Paramount. Is it on Paramount or something? I think so. I download it illegally. Sue me. Okay, you know, but what it is, it's, it's very kind of, you know, on the face of it, it's very conservative. It's all cowboys and guns mm. and traditional roles, but they build in, you know, very progressive elements. On the balance, yeah. You would say it's a little bit more conservative, mm-hmm. but it's 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 balanced enough. It's a huge hit because most shows are at least a little bit more, you know, liberal, progressive, mm-hmm. whatever, mm-hmm. which is fine. I mean, those are the values that I identify with. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of nice to see something that is, in a very logical way, going just a bit the other way, and it's wildly successful mm-hmm. like it's a slow burn it's been around for years you know nobody knows yeah i keep meaning to check it out i have had i have had people say good things about it but i'm like man I, i'm having trouble just keeping up on the shows i watch now have you seen john wick 4 <laughs> not yet i heard it's great dude i do i love i've seen all three though i've seen all three the earlier ones i even saw i saw part two and part three both in the cinema so i i need to get in the cinema to go watch it I, but, I watched part four in the cinema. I mean, Keanu Reeves is 947 years old now. He's yeah. he's almost Joe Biden's age. And the, the movie was made by the stunt coordinators from The Matrix. And he kind of did it as a favor to them. Not, you know. Yeah. And it just turned out to be a huge thing. But the hardest part, I think, must be for him. So The Matrix, I don't know if you know, I used to do a lot of karate. Like a, a, yeah, vast, yeah, yeah. a vast amount of Japanese karate. And... The Matrix is all Chinese Kung Fu. Uh-huh. Start to finish. They started doing John Wick, and they're like, hey, you know, you're obviously, you're Neo. You can't do that anymore. And he's like, fuck, I've got to learn something else. So it's a lot. Oh, yeah, you're right. It's going to look too much like his like his previous work. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that. It's a lot of weird stuff. It's a lot of kind of um, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but other stuff as well. Mm-hmm. And for an old junkie in martial arts like me, you know, they got Mark Dacascos in um, John Wick 3. He's the guy who was like the sushi chef. He's a bit yeah, of a yeah. legend. He's a bit of a legend in martial mm-hmm. arts. It was so good. But he only speaks 380 words. He's like the original laconic guy. It's like one one word every 10 minutes. Yeah. You know what, what? What movie that I see? What action film is like one of my favorites? You know, I, I love all those old school like eighties Hong Kong, nineties Hong Kong action flicks. Like which Jackie I feel Chan. Like John Wick. Yeah, I feel like John Wick is very much in that vein, like the like the gung fu, right? The gung fu type of action. But I, I saw the Raid years ago. Oh yeah, oh, Jeez, loved legends, it. Legends. loved it. I think it's Gareth Evans directed it. I think so. I think I had that right. 
But wow, what an what an amazing, amazing just the 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 the, the choreography in this next level. I mean, thinking about it in the Western world, fight choreography, boxing is awful for the most part. It's awful. Well, it's hard, and especially when they're older. Like, have you seen um, the Irishman? I haven't seen. I haven't seen. Actually, I did see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah good, good movie, dude. It's painful to watch. Scorsese, uh, sorry, not Scorsese. Um, De Niro, a de-aged De Niro, beats someone up. Um, I'm like, it just no. Sorry, dude. No way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't work. It doesn't work. But it's an interesting one, right? We talk all the time in society about how media, social media, influences things. We have more and bigger violent movies than ever before. We have ultraviolence, we have hostile and saw and all that. However, globally, violence is on a long-term decline. It's wild, right? And but everybody's more scared now than they've ever been scared. At well, least me- in the US. What, what's it? What you have um because what is it like uh the, the murder rate right now is the lowest. I think it's been more or less, more or less lowest since it's been since like the 1950s or 60s in America. But people are so freaked out of strangers, and they're so scared. That do you, I, but why do you called, think it's called me? It, it, it's it's called um because I graduated, I got my degree in journalism, so I remember we, we we studied like media effects on people, and one of them was mean world mean world syndrome, and that's where the more TV you watch, the more television you watch, the more likely you are to be afraid of the world around you. Particularly if you're watching the news, if you're watching like the evening news, because, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. They're all trying to convince you it's a dangerous world because then you won't change the channel. But the thing is, one of the side effects is that people start to get very terrified of the world. They, they, they develop mean world syndrome where they think everything's everything's scary. There's a boogeyman around every corner. And then once you can do what once that happens, then it ends up affecting people's worldview. And in the way they see the world around them, which is really terrifying. Like, I think that sometimes I wonder if that plays into what we were talking about earlier, where everybody climbs into their phone. I mean, I don't see how it co- how it couldn't play into that, where it's just like now you're, you become more afraid of, of strangers, listen to too many murder podcasts or whatever, you know, and you think everyone's out to kill you. Like, you know, just walking down the street sometimes, like in, in my neighborhood, I, I was taking the dogs on really long walks in the morning. And, you know, in, in my in the neighborhood, a lot of people say hello, good morning, good morning, when you're out really early, especially. And then, but as it, I notice, as it gets a little bit later in the day, later in the morning, rather, if you say good morning to people, sometimes they look terrified. They're just like, they like, they look scared. And I, and I thought it was just me. I'm like, okay, you know, like uh, as a man, okay, walking around. But I've actually heard women say that too. A friend of mine, she just moved here from Denver. She's like, a, you know, a, a, a petite woman. She's like, nobody here says good, good morning. No one says hello when you walk around. And I was like, what? She's like, yeah, in Denver, everyone just, if you see someone in the morning, you just say good morning. You say hello. Mm. <laughs> And I almost wonder, it's like, I don't know if it's a murder podcast or, or, you know, people are just more shy. I don't know, but it's very, I I think it's very scary because what's happening is that people online, the person online who's lecturing you about the importance of community in real life doesn't know the name of any of their neighbors. No. So it's like- All the people who say you have to be kind will gleefully participate in the destruction of somebody who's been deemed unclean. Like, it's try weird. to get them fired, everything. 
but it, it's it's very weird. I just feel like it's a very toxic thing. It's like what people sometimes they, they they subscribe more to like um like a theoretical community rather than just like the people that they see every day. Well, it might be actual a, community. it might be a synthetic idea. Their idea is my community is online. I found all these people, but yeah. I think you're onto something there. But mostly, if it bleeds. It leads. And, you know, I think that one thing that's come up, especially turbocharged by um, COVID, is that, you know, the media is a business. It has always been a business. It's not worse now than it used to be. They need our eyeballs. And, like, I, uh, so I read the Dutch media, uh, the German media. I still read the English London Times, which is like, you know, center right. Mm -hmm. I read the New York Times, I read the New York Post, I read, you know, some other stuff. And all they all partake in outrage media. They yeah, all, yeah, yeah. they like all of them, even like some of these are the most prestigious newspapers in the world. They're all clickbait now. Yeah, it's, and, it's rough, man. I read, I read a statistic recently. It said that, there are half as many full-time journalists as there were 10 years ago, like paid full-time journalists. Dude, you can't work as a journalist unless you have family money. I'm sorry, that's it. And it's the same way. It's actually become the same way with acting. If you look at a lot of the mega superstars, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, <laughs> Benedict Cumberbatch. No, because what it was in England, in America, other places, they eliminated drama in high schools and whatnot yeah right so only the That's private bad. schools kept that in fact you even see it in sports in things like soccer and rugby mm -hmm. right but i do think it's a big function of the fact that and you know what it's everyone's fault but is it our fault like if you're reading a newspaper and the headlines click baby and you click on it okay you could have some degree of personal integrity. But on the other hand, if I see a headline that says, you know, Eric Castro murders a camel, mm -hmm. I, I got to click on yeah. it. Right? <laughs> Even if it means that you ripped up a photo of a camel. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, know. camel cigarettes or something. Yeah. So uh, that's the thing. Like, and most people, don't know how to deal with media and they don't know how to interpret statistics. So at media, I've had arguments with people who aren't stupid. They're maybe not smart, not stupid, but you know, they're like, I say, okay, show me the proof. And they, they link an article, but the article talks about a report, not the actual report. It just talks about a report. I'm like, okay, no, no, no. Show me the article. And very often the article, sorry, the report Just itself the report, yeah. is completely different. Yeah, yeah. Like you're when right. you click through, it's very different. And the other thing is, people don't understand statistics. It could be an 80% rise in um, transgender murders in America, which is a true thing. But that means it's gone from uh, 41 a year to 42 or 43, which is still terrible. Yeah, like, yeah. Right? So we're asking a lot of people these days, I feel.
I'm, I'm very, I'm very worried about. Um, I didn't know you were a journalism graduate. I yeah, want yeah, you yeah, to I, inject I, I, that I, in I, here. I, I thought you just from, came out of prison and went into a bar. Yeah, no, I got my degree from San Diego School, uh, San Diego State School of Journalism, and I, I'm actually really glad about that because um, the the school has become more and more prestigious ever since I left. <laughs> <laughs> so it does help out. That's it like the cocktail well. scene in Holland. It got yeah. better after I emigrated. Yeah, yeah, but. Yeah, it's very interesting. It, it, it's very interesting. But again, I feel like, you know, to tie that back to hospitality in the field that we work in, it's like it, it's it's even more important to like for, for, for folks when they walk into a bar to have that human touch because the world is, you know, the, the world can be so dysregulating. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that having that place where you can go to and seeing a smiling face and someone who recognizes you is like, hey, Phil, how you doing, man? You want the usual? You know, that type of stuff can just be so much more, can, can make so much more of an impact w- with people. And especially, I mean, because at the end of the day, if you're not making, if you're not making regulars, what are you doing? Well, it's the third place. Like I yeah. was at the Maison premiere party last night. My wife wasn't home. My kid wasn't home. And I stayed at the party for an hour, hour and a half. Irish goodbye. Walked out. Mm-hmm. I'm glad, you, I'm glad you said that, though, because I've heard people say that's offensive. But since you're Irish, I'm glad that, that you gave the pass. Yeah, no one gives a shit about the Irish car bomb either. <laughs> so I went home and on my way was Hudson Malone. And I went in. I got off the subway. I walked in. I said hi to Jimmy, the bartender and Dave. And I put my coat down and I'm like, got to take a wicked pee. Go up. I came back. There was already a martini glass. With a lemon zest empty in front of me. And Jimmy said, Hey, Phil, do you want the usual? And I'm like, Yeah. And I had that and I had a burger and I went home. Oh, sounds wonderful. But the third place is very important. It's not your wife or your husband or partner or friend or roommate. It's not your work. Mm-hmm. In a way, it's a it, you can put on a different mask. You can be a different person. And mm-hmm. for me, like you're in the world of bars, I'm in the world of bars. It's so important that you have a place near where you live, where you're not Eric Castro, where you're not mm-hmm. Philip Duff, where you don't even, nobody has a fucking clue who you are. We Dog used to have a place like that called Parlor in the Upper East Side. And one time I went to take a piss. I came back and my wife was lecturing the bartender on how to make a martini. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. No, yeah, no, no. yeah, 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 yeah. Don't no, no, no. This. We have something good. This here. is our safe place. Because everywhere else, I've got to drink Geneva or a client thing. I've got to be Philip Duff. This is a place where we can be just us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I get that. I get that. It's it's so it's nice. I like I like the anonymity of a lot of places like that. Um it's always good having those little places, like a little um a place a place where where you can be anonymous and no one's going to ask you about gin or vermouth or want to talk to you about cocktails. Oh god, yeah. It's the best. That's why it's yeah. kind of weird when <laughs> Ashley introduced herself to me just now in Bargado. Yeah. This Ashley is one of your- yeah, who who used to uh work with me at Polite provisions 10 years ago, 11 10 years ago. Jesus, yeah, she has gal. a good memory. Yeah, oh, great guy. I mean, when when was I in Polite provisions? Was that 8 years ago, 9, 10? No, it, yeah, but no, if she was serving you it would have been 10 years ago cuz she was only there, she was there in the very beginning to help us open. Yeah. I mean, the thing was, it's it's quite a small bar. And mm. I was in the corner with uh the beverage director of the famous bar Valerie in New York, 
And I know the guest bartender, Timo, he used to work for me in Amsterdam. So I'm kind of, you know, I'm getting a lot of attention and stuff. And there was, she was definitely there with some colleagues herself. Mm -hmm. And she said, what's, I'm, I'm fascinated to know who you are. I said, I'm Philip Duff. And she looked at me and there was like a 10 second period, which is, you know, it gets awkward really. And, and and then she's like, oh, I served you in polite provisions. And I'm like, whoa, holy shit. I mean, I didn't yeah. remember her, but she remembered me. So God bless her. Yeah, she's a great gal. Really great gal. I haven't seen her for a long time, but I'm glad she's doing well in New York. I think she's doing well in New York, man. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you a question. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Let's if, hear it, my friend. If there was a country in the world where you could open a bar, and I'm not just like fantasy bar if you had... 10 million dollars but where you th- would actually do the work to open a bar what country would it be i mean aside from from the u.s obviously man mexico city seems like a cool place i mean not seems like a cool place but is a good place and i really love it there do you think you could do it yeah maybe not spanish yeah it, it, it could, it, it, yeah 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 it's my first language it's a little is rusty it? though because i don't speak it very often yeah yeah it's your, you, you have a sister, don't you? Yeah. What's her name? I have two sisters, an uh, older one named Ruby and a younger one named Crystal. I think Ruby's really hot. I remember looking at her Instagram. <laughs> I've been hearing that since I was about 10 years old. Yeah. But, well, it's, all, it's the whole um, shoes in Africa thing, isn't it? You know the old uh, saying, you know, shoe salesman gets off the plane in Africa and no one's wearing shoes. He's like, fuck, this is a shitty market. Mm-hmm. parallel universe shoe salesman gets off the plane in africa no one's wearing shoes he's like that's it i'm gonna be rich mm-hmm. like mexico city is really going off it's 10 million yeah they people. have some amazing bars already that the city doesn't wouldn't even need me it would just be like you know my little brother lives there i have a little half brother lives there Seriously? my dad li- my, yeah my dad lives about two hours outside of the city so it's like um where's he live I, uh my dad lives in colima Oh, like, Kalima's. Um, no, yeah. dude, Kalima is the next place, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You so know that. It's one of the oh. necklace cities, the the diamond. Yeah. So so if I did that, it, it would honestly be mostly an excuse just to go out there and hang out. Would you live <laughs> Make there? Make it a business expense. No, full oh, time forever? There. Yeah, I could easily live there. I've actually even talked about it before. Um, would you, I mean, like I... If it wasn't there, it would be Paris. I don't, I don't want to learn French. But why Paris? <laughs> I love Paris. Well, kind I love Paris. Mexico City, if we're being honest. Um, yeah, well, I would, it's one of my favorite cities. One of my, you know, I feel like the, I feel like London would be cool too. But now I'm talking about a place where you would commit and truly live. Yeah, Mexico City, probably. Hmm. It's it's not safe, really. Yeah. You know what? I live in the U.S. <laughs> yeah, but dude, <laughs> dude, Cape Town, CDMX. Yeah, yeah. I I adore these places. I re- I I truly do. Yeah, but like, but I would I, say I would say that the, the the crime. Well, Mexico City, Mexico City's not 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 bad. Um. But and even then, it's like you know the the neighborhoods, like the neighborhoods we would open a bar are completely safe, you know. Um, 
No, but now you're talking like someone in Cape Town, which I dig. Like I, I've often said, and I mean this, Cape Town is the best place in the world if you have a gun. Mm. Like I could take you there. I could show you the crime statistics, everything. Yeah. And the next day you'd be looking in real estate windows. It's that good. I would, I know all this. Mm-hmm. It's so, it, it's the mother city. It's so stunningly amazing. But mm-hmm. when things go wrong, they go all the way wrong. Mm-hmm. We're, we're not talking about like, because well, there's other reasons for it. But God, I love Mexico City. I went oh, there for the first time 20 years ago. I was almost at the opening of the um, uh, Anthropology Museum there, which is the most amazing. Yeah, I've been. Yeah, it's, I've been. It's gorgeous, oh, yeah. my God. It's massive. Yeah. Dude. And like, it's going off. It's it's killing it. Mm-hmm. And... You know, living in another country, speaking another language, you can do it. Mm-hmm. It's a personal voyage. Like, I'm bilingual in Dutch, and I mm-hmm. love going back to Holland. I feel I feel most at home, actually, in London. Second, yeah. at, second at home in Amsterdam, because I had 17 years there. But New York is like, who doesn't feel at home in New York? I know because New York's great. I do. You love grew up watching it on TV. Yeah, yeah. You already feel you you get deja vu just walking down the street. For good reason, too. For good reason. Where would you like to grow old, Eric Castro? Hmm. Me, I don't know. Palm Springs. <laughs> La Jolla. Where's La Jolla? La Jolla, here in San- uh, La Jolla is here in San Diego. It's just like a really, really rich neighborhood that's right on the beach. Well, okay. Let me... Turn it around. Imagine you weren't doing any work you didn't have to do, right? Mm-hmm. You might travel a bit, speak a bit, do whatever you do, right? Where would you like to be? What would the environment be like, the climate? And what would your day look like? Like for me, warm water reading. What about you? I like San Diego. San Diego is just a good town. Dude, it's fucking great. I wake up every morning, man. I take my dogs on like a six-mile walk, five or six-mile walk every morning. We go out yeah. there. We just like get, I tire them out a little bit. They're only two years old each, so it's like it wears them out. It, it helps me get my head sorted for the rest of the day. Can't beat it. San Diego's a great town. Great weather. Nice. What people. would you do if you didn't need to work any day? You got money. It's coming in. It's boom. What would you do? What, what, so, sorry. Thing. <laughs> well, no, but like, okay, you walk the dogs. That's like a couple of hours. Like, yeah, do you yeah. like to read? Do you murder homeless people? Do you write? No, do you... Like to, yeah, I like to read. I would, I would probably do a lot of what I do right now because a lot of stuff that I do right now, I don't really consider it work, even though it is. It's just rewarding. Specify? Yeah. What, what do you mean? What do you do that you like? I go so check in on the bars. You know, I do a little bit of co- cocktail consulting, develop recipes. Do some, um, do the podcast. I mean, honestly, I feel like I'm I'm living my best life right now, man. I'm feeling good. I, I would keep doing this. I don't even think I would. I don't even think I'd stop. Maybe travel a little bit more. What's the country in the world that you haven't been to that you want to go to? I haven't been anywhere in South America. And I think that's insane. I think that's Dude. insane. 
I've never I've been, been everywhere South in South America. Look at me. I this know. is me. I've never been. I just got back from the Dominican Republic. This is me tanned. Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> no. <laughs> to be, you know, to be fair, I've been everywhere. I've been from Panama up. I've been everywhere. Except El Salvador. Um Well, you don't want to go there, shit. Yeah, yeah I've heard it's I've heard it's a little rough. But although oh, you got to go to you got to go to Brazil. You got to go to Argentina. Minimum. I, a, I, I had a brand trip. I was supposed to go down with uh, on a Cachaça tour to Brazil years ago and I had to like I had to reschedule it and wasn't able, it just never happened. But I do need to go to South America. I would love to. I would love to go um uh Peru, Argentina, Chile, Brazil. There's so much that I, I I honestly would just love to spend three or four weeks just just hopping um hopping around just checking out different places. All those places, I'll hook you up, man. And yeah. all of them are very interesting for cocktail nerds like us. I'm yeah. being a cocktail nerd is not going to get you fucking laid as a single man. So, hey, there you go. But <laughs> what it is, because they isolated themselves from the world, communism, trade, blocks, mm-hmm. embargoes, whatever, they are fucking time capsules of mixology. Mm-hmm. They never. Cool. Oh, my God. It's so cool. They never stopped doing a lot of the old stuff. Mm-hmm. It's it, it's remarkable. And, you know, it's also hard. It's mm-hmm. difficult. Life is hard there, you know. I'm um, advising a mega person in our world of bars and cocktails who wants to um, start a Pisco now. Not just mm-hmm. a Pisco, a, Ch- a Chilean Pisco. So I'm mm-hmm. reaching out via, via, via. And, like, why not Pisco, like Geneva, was one of the fucking me- why can't it come back? You know? Yeah, yeah, it was like, huge, especially in the west on the west coast. Dude, it was a west coast thing. Yeah, yeah. So moving on. Mm-hmm. Uh modern things in the news. Has the war in Ukraine affected you or your business in any way? Not in a direct way that I can think of. Um, not that I can think of. Not, not in regards to the bars, no. Have you had any shortages in liquor or allocations? Yo, yeah, definitely, definitely. I think that's more supply chain stuff related rather than, than what's going on with, with Russia. You think. But the thing is, Ukraine supplies a lot of the um, literal energy and power to Western Europe. So wow. the cost of producing glass and bottles has oh, gone. Yeah. No, my um I've just created a gin and a rum for a client of mine. They're amazing. And the distillery I used to do it, the same one that makes old Duff Geneva. Yeah. Um, they told me, so for the gin, what neutral spirit do you want? And I'm like, eh, I'm thinking wheat. And they're like, and I said, what? And they're like, well, it's going to be more expensive. And I'm like, how much more expensive? I'm like, three times more. I'm like, it's fine. Because it's so cheap. Neutral mm-hmm. alcohol is so cheap. But and it ties into how statistics, how you, how you talked about earlier, where like, oh, it increased three times, but it's still inexpensive. Yeah. But if you're making 10 million <laughs> <Yeah>. bottles, it's <laughs> a big deal. Yeah, Yeah. It's a big deal. 
-hmm. Like the Ukrainian conflict is so big. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like COVID. COVID just ended, right? Mm -hmm. And we're all like, do, 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 do. We're like people in 1946 after World War II. We're like, okay, we're fine. People will write books about what we went through for 100 years. We yeah. don't know what we just went through. Yeah. And yeah. there'll be statistics about what was the right idea. Should we have masks and mm -hmm. vaccinations? I mean, dude, I jumped the queue over disabled immunodeficient people to get the vaccination. I didn't really do that. But no, but here, but because you travel so much for work, I would understand why 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 they would. No, no, I'm um I have a, a a vendor license to sell alcohol in New York, and that qualified as a retail sales thing. So it only meant I got the vaccine mm -hmm. a week before, mm -hmm. you know. But yeah, it's we're too close to it. We don't know what it was. Like I still, I was going to the airport last week and had a panic attack. I'm like, oh my god, I didn't have a test. Oh, I don't need a test. Yeah. <laughs> this is me. Mm -hmm. I hit 40 countries a year. This is yeah. wild shit, man. Yeah, I had a friend of mine, he like he was hung over <laughs> and he threw up before a flight and they wouldn't let him board. They made him take a COVID test and he ended up missing his flight. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. Really? Fair, he Where? Said he, had, he, he said he had a cold. But where was he? Hey, he was leaving New York. He was going from New York to California. Jesus. And the, the, the gal had seen him like throw up. You know, the, the, the person at the front desk was like, well, no, you're not getting on that plane. You need to take a COVID test. And of course, he was negative because he didn't have COVID. And, but, he, but by then, they had already boarded and left without him. <laughs> Dude, more and more, Stephen King's The Stand was mm. prophetic. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't it wild to think, right? For the rest of our lives, which will be short because we drink, you can go into any bar. You could go into a fucking remote hut in Fiji. And if there is someone of roughly your age, you can look at them and say, what did you do during COVID? Yeah. Just like... Your, to be honest, great-grandfather could walk into any bar and say, hey, where were you in World War II? Yeah. But yeah. World War II was actually quite limited. Ooh. We can do this. Every, everybody. I, I was in New Zealand on March 17th, 2020, when I finally admitted this COVID thing might not be a fucking hoax. And yeah. I flew home. I had the longest St. Patrick's Day that has ever existed. 42 hours. I woke up at 7 a.m. in Wellington, New Zealand, and I walked in my apartment door in New York City at 7 p.m. the same day, 42 hours later. Wow. Wow. Wild shit. I was at a film festival in Dublin when it, when it dawned on me that it was real. What date was because that? Probably like February 28th or something. And that was the first time it really affected something that I guess I was involved in where I was at a, I was seeing a film directed by a, a Chinese director. 
Uh-huh. And she was supposed to speak before the film. And then but she had to record something like, oh, unfortunately, the director can't be here today. So she recorded this because of COVID restrictions. She can't get out of the country. And we were like, whoa, wait, what? Like Those crazy joinies. But no, I mean, no, that's when it really hit us. Like, wait, whoa, oh, so man. So it's like not contained. She like, they're afraid of her bringing it to Dublin. You know, and then it was just, and then so on and so forth. You know, it, the, the cat was out of the bag. Now, I was spending, I spent several weeks. I feel that I actually created COVID because I spent several weeks in London with an Italian bartender repping an Italian brand. And we're going around London. And as you know, every second bartender is Italian. And yeah, yeah. If you're lucky. It's true. And my client had got me an Airbnb. It was awesome. But it was quite cold in February, and they only had like an electric heater. Yeah. So I had kind of a sore throat. And I never get sick. Mm-hmm. It's not a thing. But I had kind of a sore throat. We're going around, and all the Italian bartenders in late February are freaking the fuck out. Because COVID hit Italy first and hardest in Europe. And the reason mm-hmm. was, if you buy an Italian artisanal handmade product it is artisanal and it's handmade there's no question but it's handmade by chinese people chinese people have come over to italy they've taken over entire villages they've got little you know workshops and Mm -hmm. and china is the birth of civilization it's the birth of craft they're the best Mm -hmm. but covid hit them first yeah so all these uh, Italian bartenders in London were freaking out because they weren't allowed to fly home. They'd have to quarantine for two weeks. And I was like, oh, that sucks. Mm. And I went on and I, I launched Old Duff in Australia and New Zealand and Thailand. And I'm in New Zealand. I, I do feel that I'm actually the reason that... You might be patient zero. Yeah, I probably am. And yeah. it finally got there. And... The world was closing down. I was, I was, I was in week three of a seven-week tour. I was, I was on, you know, I was like Guns N' Roses, Appetite for Destruction. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'm in Wellington, New Zealand. I'm like, yeah, this shit's bad, man. And I'm looking at the New Zealand people, and I'm like, yeah, they would have no problem locking me up. So <laughs> I, I had an odyssey. I had the rare privilege of waiting for the bar to open in LAX at 9 a.m. Because it was St. Patrick's Day. I'm not going home sober. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I walked in the door. I have never loved my wife and stepdaughter more. We had a beautiful dinner. And I said, hey, I got money in the bank. We're locking down. This is it. Mm-hmm. And And a lot of it seems like a dream now, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. It really does. It really does. Kind of changed a lot, a, a lot of things, and changed a lot of perspectives on it. But I finally feel just now I'm like more or less like sort of society's just really re- rebounding from it, myself included. Well, I think we're we've changed, obviously. Mm-hmm. Of course, we have. But it's going to take a long time to see what the changes actually were. Mm-hmm. We don't know. Everyone's like, do, 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 do. Like, 
on different sides of the Atlantic, masks were um, polarized. Like yeah, I remember yeah. in New York City, everyone's like, oh, wear a mask. We're fine. It's New York. Mm-hmm. Right. And then about a year and a half later, it was like, oh, you don't need to wear a mask. And the masks had become so associated with Donald Trump, who, mm-hmm. for you know, new listeners to the podcast, quite controversial person. Mm-hmm. Um, more people wore masks after it was announced that they were okay. Because they then had no way to signal that they weren't Donald Trump voters. Mm-hmm. Like, if somebody had set up a company selling I voted for Hillary masks, they would have made $100 billion. Mm-hmm. Wasted opportunity there. Wasted opportunity there. And the other way around, one of the, the, the major investor for the dead rabbit, somebody that I count as a, a, a good friend, Connor, his wife um, was filming the, I, I think, Netflix show Your Honor with Brian Cranston in New Orleans, right? And they were going to film in March 2020. So, of course, it didn't happen. But they started filming in October. And Geraldine, the actress, uh, she's a tiny Irish woman. I mean, she's mega, mega famous. She was in Rocky IV, all the kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And they had all these protocols, all these people... She's in an apartment. She's taken. The makeup person does her makeup at distance. The protocols are rock solid. Mm -hmm. The only thing, the only recreation she can have in the evening is to walk around with a mask on in the French Quarter. And she's walking around in the French Quarter with a mask on in October 2020. And she's being physically harassed. Cars are like driving past her saying take your mask off people come up and try to slap her mask off this is this is a five five irish woman in the french quarter that's some Mm. wild shit yeah yeah man that that that, that's pretty miserable that that's pretty miserable that's when you think yeah that's when you think it's one or the other. Like now, I'm like Ted Lasso. I see someone wearing a mask. I'm I'm not curious, or, or rather, I'm not judgmental. I'm curious. I'm like, hey, what's going on? Like, you might have shit going on. I don't know. Care? Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a free country, man. So you they can they can wear it or not. But my thing is, if I see someone with it now, I just assume that maybe like they have a cold or they have strep throat and they don't want to get the rest of us sick. But either way, even at the end of the day, it's not really my business anyway. <laughs> they could put it, you know, they can do what they want. Yeah, I mean, it upsets me with the whole, you know, you hear about people at restaurants and arguing and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it just occurred to me because I've been drinking heavily. Um, <laughs> you're in San Diego military base yeah you know Navy SEALs and whatnot. Um, can people carry guns there um, 
Yeah, you can carry guns in California, but it can't be concealed. Right. So could someone walk into a bar carrying a gun? I never heard of anybody trying that. No, I don't think you can. I don't think you're, you're as far as I know, I don't think they're allowed in restaurants or, sorry, in bars. Mm. Interesting. I've never looked into it, but it's never really come up. I mean, what do you think about, I mean, obviously, in America, let's be fair, we're mm. not going to change <clears throat> the ability to have guns, mm. right? Possibly it might be changed that you need training and registration and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Like, what's your feeling? Oh, what? On, like, taking it into a bar or taking it into a... Taking guns no. into a bar? What do you mean? No, no, no. Just guns generally. Like, forget about bars, right? Mm-hmm. I think there's not going to be a situation where Americans can't own guns. Mm-hmm. It's, we're too far down the line. But... Yeah, yeah. There might be a requirement for training or mm-hmm. registration or stuff. What do you feel about that? I mean, I don't have an issue with it. I mean, because the thing is, obviously, I, I think there's a lot more to it. I think it gets a little more complicated where, you know, Canada, I believe, has more guns per capita than we do. And way less. But they're nice guns. Less, and way less violence than we have, gun violence. And I do think it's like a lot of it has to do with the fact that you know, they, they have stricter laws regarding, you know, um, re- regarding who can have a gun and who can't and when it can get taken away. And like, you know, if you have and I think a lot of those guns, I don't think they're they're unreasonable or those laws they have in Canada. I don't think are I don't think the average person would think that they're unreasonable or or out of the question or evasive in any way whatsoever. I think we could save a lot of lives in this country by just having some of the most bare minimum commonsensical um you know um laws put back in put in place what 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 would those what would those be um you know it's like if there's someone of of, of questionable um a questionable mind state i think it's important for for police to check in on them like you know because sometimes you hear about these things where like oh yeah neighbors were calling saying that this guy was like threatening to kill people and was like you know um cool off periods things like that um spousal approval of a gun in the house boom dude i gotta jump in here things like that by the way have you ever have you ever fired a gun oh yeah yeah dude it's the best yeah it's so much fun yeah it's so much fun and it should be fun but about six years ago i was in south africa Mm -hmm. and i am i adore south africa i go there all the time I was at a barbecue with my buddy, Kurt Schlechter, owner mm-hmm. of World's 50 Best Bar, Calls and Effect. Yeah. And his brother, Etienne, who I've known for 25 years. Etienne was a gunnery sergeant during um, his military service. Now, you must know, that South Africa is very lawless. There's a mm-hmm. great amount of murder and everything. Mm-hmm. SEN applied for a gun license, having been a gunnery sergeant in his military service. And there was a whole vetting, and part of the vetting involved, they called up his wife and said, hey, how's your husband? Does he 
Does he fly off the handle? Is he a bit? Yeah. When South Africa has better vetting, America, are you fucking with me? Like, Jesus Christ. Yeah, I know. It's a bit with all due respect. I love America. It's been a great country for me. But I mean, it, it, it's like simple opportunities that are being ignored. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But shooting guns is awesome. Yeah, it, it's fun. It's fun. Um, Like skeet shooting when you go like. Uh, I'm pretty good at skeet shooting. You know, I've been like uh, when I went to the wildest uh, wild turkey distillery years back and we just saw you know shooting um shooting the skeets shooting the discs that fly out it's a lot of fun yeah there's some things that you know appeal more in 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 one way than another yes but guns the thing is where i'm from they were never an option yeah and for so many people not just in america they are an option it, 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 it's very strange. Like, I love shooting guns, but the idea of having a gun with me, like, I'll tell you a story. I have, uh, my wife has seven siblings. Yeah. And one of them is a former um, law enforcement guy. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to get a concealed weapons permit. Mm-hmm. So in the city where he lives, he went and he he tested out, and I met him at Thanksgiving. And he said, "Oh, it was very hard. It was very hard. To be honest, I didn't hit the target, but I knew the guy." So, and I said, "Okay, how how's this going to work?" So you're carrying a concealed weapon. He says, "It's it, yeah." So if I hear somebody doing you know Allahu Akbar or whatever and then I jumped in and I said and I'm like so what you're going to almost shoot him because you couldn't hit the fucking target relaxed (laughs) easy with your buddy like you're you're gonna be John Wick here really you couldn't hit a target with no pressure yeah, it's 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 a fantasy, I think, for a lot of people. I love it. Fuck. When I'm in the gym, I just watch the bathhouse scene in John Wick. Fuck. <laughs> like, and I used to, I taught karate and I boxed. I fucking love it. Uh-huh. I mean, however, I very often can't get through the subway thing in New York because my phone's not working. So I'm it's not gonna happen. Yeah. You gotta realize this 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 fantasy it's toxic. Yeah that, I mean that's what it is. It is a fantasy so Ooh, man maybe we'll see if AI can fix it. <laughs> Before <laughs> enslaving us. Yeah there was a New York Times cartoon, and it was like, um, like humans with like huge uh, packs on their back being whipped by robots, and one human being whipped by robots 
says the other human is like, it's strange to think this started with us allowing them to complete our, uh, you know, to correct our spelling. Yeah. Man, brother, I know, I know, I know. All right, look, we're wrapping this up. Uh Tell me the most surprisingly good new drink you've had and the bar that you had it at. Ooh. Okay. Doesn't have to be amazing. I went to Aruba Day Drinking Bar last week. Where's that? It's in in Tijuana. Uh Uh-huh. The cocktail scene down there is incredible, but this bar in particular, I swear, I did did the gamut. I probably tried like four different drinks there. Every cocktail was exquisite. Like, they're at least as good as any bar I've had in like... In Tijuana. What was it? In Tijuana, yeah. And you could walk there from San Diego, huh? Yeah, yeah, you just say, uh, yeah, you go, go to the border, cross on foot, and then take like a $3, maybe like a, a $2 Uber to the bar. So describe it to us. How does it look? How does it feel? It just feels, it's called a Aruba Day Drinking Bar, and that's the vibe. It's very much like pop in, hang out, spend the afternoon there. It's very like, you know, it's not like um, opulent. It's very like um, understated, but just very relaxing. Uh very friendly bartenders. Cocktails are exquisite. Like as good as any you've ever had anywhere. Well, is that good? In a very, in a very non-assume, very. Um, what are they trying to do? Very elegant, subtle, delicious cocktails. Do they want to win? Do they want to be on a list? Do they want to. Um, I don't even know if that's really what, what they're in it for. You know, they're just, they're, they're just, you know, selling t- tasty drinks. They did make it onto like um, I think uh, the the regional ten best list nice. for for best restaurant be, best restaurant cocktails I think for um for Mexico. So Eric Castro, best yeah. new thing brand or category whatever it is you've drunk in the last year. Best new thing I've tried. Um, trying to think best new thing oh you know empirical they make some really cool stuff dude it's wild their stuff's really cool you know if i had to pick one though i would say they're um the sorghum spirits really interesting sorghum and plum are yeah stellar they're just weird it's almost like these guys invented new spirits categories well what they are and i know the guys i know lars Mm -hmm. i've been to noma i've actually been to where they make it um they're a free research lab for all of us. I have yeah. no idea if they'll ever make money, but oh my fucking God. And in quite a few um, states in the US and countries around the world, we have the same distributor. So there are empirical and old Duff Geneva cocktails, which is the ultimate mm-hmm. weirdness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really cool. Yeah, I've been a fan of everything that there's I've tried. I'm, everything in theirs I've tried, um, but I'm particular, particularly, yeah, it would be the plum and the sorghum. Like the sorghum tastes like somewhere in the out there in the metaverse, there is sorghum in its entire category. Yeah, but dude, around the world, yeah, the largest and most lucrative category of spirits in the entire world is Chinese baijiu. Yeah, yeah, and it is entirely, and I do mean this, entirely supplied. By American sorghum farmers. Yeah, yeah. There is no bycho. 
I, I remember without I, American I sorghum. Distillery. I was I, I visited a couple distilleries out in um in Chung in Chengdu. A few oh, years Chengdu back. is the fucking best, man. It's wild, man. Just Chengdu still. If you haven't partied in Chengdu, you haven't partied in I know. China. <laughs> oh, dude, I love it. It's the best. Yeah. It was really I had, cool, man. I had Chris Louder translating for me. It's wild. That's like having me translate for you in South Holland. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's wonderful, man. Yeah. I love me some Baijiu, though. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of the whole of the category. What do you like? What's your thing? Because I like soy aroma. Um, yeah, I like so- soy aroma. Soy aroma is my, my, my favorite, too. Yeah. Um, I like sauce aroma, too, though. Because I like yeah. not, not not necessarily high amounts, but I do like it's like, you know, you make like a, a some like a rum tropical drink and you put like a half ounce in there and it goes a long way. Yeah, but dude, you can you can drop it in. I was talking to um, Joey Smith. He's a guy at uh, Shizu and Zuzu's here in New York last mm-hmm. night. And we were talking about pina coladas. He's into pina coladas. He loves them. He's writing a book. And I told him, my buddy Tom Ziancali from uh, Ziancali Bar in Berlin, we were doing a thing in Iceland, and he made a pina colada with hakarl. Hakarl is the buried fermented shark of Iceland. We were in Iceland. (laughs) I'm here to tell you, that's the most delicious pina colada ever. Yeah. And it's the same... If you made a Baijo pina colada, it's thing. It's, uh, I bet it's you'd be nice. really good. Dude, it's really? so good. Yeah. It's so I good. I believe it. Now, dude, it's a whole thing. Well, yeah. Mr. Castro. Yes, sir. This has been an entire pleasure. Yeah. We could do this for a lot longer. And I hope we, we will do this yeah. in person. But before we conclude, mm-hmm. for all our 14 listeners, um, where can people find you? What are your handles, emails, well, websites, Instagram? On socials, they can find me um, at Hungry Bartender. And um, also be sure to follow at Bartender at Large on Instagram. And you, you can check out the podcast on you know, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, anywhere with the, that, that host quality podcasts are fun. So, uh, and if they happen to find themselves in San Diego, pop in a race by Wolves. You know, I might be working the floor. I might be popping around. So, so come on, come on through. Pick up a bottle, have a cocktail. And it's not like I really care. We don't have a sponsor or anything, but you know, like, subscribe, all that kind of thing. And you might get to hang out with people like yes. Eric. Moore. Yeah. So, ending the recording. Five, four, three. <laughs>